0: Thank you for listening to the Sermon Podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Man, how fun is it in this holiday season to be able to participate in baptisms and see those happen. Aren't you thankful for that? What a joy both services have been. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series on why is Christmas so special. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a moment here as uh, Mary hears some things from an angel. As you're turning there, just one programming note for uh, Christmas Eve. I just want to remind you that there won't be any Christmas Eve services in the evening. So Christmas Eve is a day, and uh, sometimes when we say that... uh, Uh, Somebody thought we might not be doing services in the morning either. We are. We're going to be having church in the morning, but not in the evening because of uh, Christmas at the Elsinore and a few other things that are going on for our team. Uh, And I would actually encourage you during this season, uh, if you've seen how much um, has been produced by AJ and his crew, are you thankful for the worship leaders and all the folks that we have that are are just, yeah. Yeah. Write them a note. This, uh, this year, uh, it wasn't possible for us to, to pull that off. We will uh, intend to return to that this next year, but um, we're um, wanting to make sure you didn't show up Christmas Eve here in the evening and uh, have closed doors. Um, Luke chapter 1. Why is Christmas so special? When we were uh, thinking about this series and just kind of outlining it and talking about what is typical for this time of year, one of the things that we were highlighting was that in most churches you've heard the Christmas story. And so what we tend to try to do is find some new passage or a new way to look at an old passage uh, or some way around just repeating those same things. Uh, And the implication is that we've heard those passages before, so somehow they might lose their power. And we end up in all these wild places where we're trying to Describe not just what the individuals are, are experiencing uh, at the manger scene, but what was the donkey thinking and what was the inn manager thinking and all of those kinds of things. And so instead of trying to avoid those passages this year, this is our intention. We wanted to lean into those key passages. What are the central passages that, are, that give meaning to the Christmas story that inform us? about what happened at them. And what are some of the things that we can learn? What what are they intending to teach us? The truth about Christ and some of the secondary things that come as a result of that truth in Christ. They're all evident in those stories. So we're gonna look closely at some of those passages. But also there are stories in our culture that get all of their power from the truth of the gospel. They get all of their power from what has been described in scripture. They wouldn't have any meaning, these Christmas stories that mean so much to us as a culture, unless Jesus Christ came the way that he did, lived the life that he lived, died, was buried, and rose again for us, giving meaning to that whole entire storyline. Unless he did those things, those stories that we uh, enjoy telling this time of year would not have power. So we were also not just going to lean into the Christmas story and those gospel words, but some of our cultural stories and say, Where did the power of that story come from? And we'll see that it comes from the gospel. In fact, the focus or the premise for this month as we look at the Christmas story once again is that the warmth and the magic of Christmas are born out of the grand themes of the gospel. The gospel gives meaning to all of those things. Billy Graham, when he was talking about this, said this about Christmas. He said, Christmas is not a myth. It's not a tradition. It's not a dream. It is a glorious reality. It's a time of joy. Bethlehem's manger crib became the link that bound the lost world to a loving God. From that manger came a man who not only taught us a new way of life, but brought us into a relationship with our creator. Christmas means that God is interested in the affairs of people, that God loves us so much he was willing to give his son. Christmas is uh, highlighting that theme, the gift of Jesus Christ for mankind, a gift that we needed. Uh, Another pastor was talking about uh, witnessing something and he said it it brought to mind what quite often does happen at Christmas. He was uh, watching a young lady describe what had happened uh, just recently at her house. She had a a new baby uh, and she wanted to introduce this new baby, Junior, she said, to uh, all of her friends. So she had a party, and at the house they spent all this time making preparations to have everybody over, and they were going to come over the afternoon, have a little bit of lunch, be able to meet uh, her new baby boy. And so the time finally arrives. The entire house is decorated. All of the sandwiches and all the stuff are made. All of the the, the punch and coffee is ready to go. People are coming in. There's squeals of excitement and joy, and they're hugging and they're uh, finally everybody's into the house and. Uh, they all said, hey, it's time for us to meet him, bring him out, and so she goes to get him. She goes into the back room, and there's her husband watching sports on TV, and she says, okay, you know, where's Junior at? And uh, he goes, I thought you had him. And she says, no, I brought him to you, and neither of them have the baby, and now there is a mad scramble. Where is the child? And she had forgotten that that morning, she had taken him over when she had gone to her in-laws to pick up some supplies, and had actually left him with her in-laws, the baby was not in the house. She had forgotten about him. In all of the preparations to get all of the people over there, the baby had been forgotten in her home. And this pastor says, how often does this happen at Christmas time for us? We have all of these preparations for family, for friends. We make all of these arrangements, but we forget the most important guest, the one that should be sitting there with us. It's Jesus. So in order for us to not forget Christ, and in order for us to see the value of relationships... Relationships don't get in the way of Jesus. Jesus amplifies our ability to enjoy relationships. I want us to take a look at not just this Christmas story, but the role that the truth about Jesus plays in relationships. It is central to our celebration of Christmas. So we're going to read in Luke uh, chapter one, this story of Mary. Because Uh, It is a longer passage. Typically I'll have you stand, but we've had some folks say that they struggle to be able to uh, do that. So I want you to uh, read reverently as you sit, okay? Um, We're going to read this passage and be able to listen to what is happening at real events that happen to these folks as they are are recording these things. So we'll do what Pastor Pete consistently does. He'll ask you if you're ready. So if you're ready, say Ready. Here we go. It says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. She was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this would be. And the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, now uh, just pause really quick right there. This is one of the evidences that Mary was a teenager, okay? You've just, engaged, you've just heard from an angel. He's telling you these dramatic things. You're beginning to process it, but she's already fading off and thinking about, you know, what all these consequences are. And the angel has to pause and say, hey, hey, listen up. If an angel was talking to you, I think you'd stay focused if you're 30 and older, but not so. A teenager, he says, now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I've not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be, that will be born through, will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And the angel left. In those days, so immediately following that announcement, Mary set out And hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt with joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their heart. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham, his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months and returned to her home. Do you believe that that actually happened? It did. I just want you to notice uh, two things uh, in particular in this. We see the truth of this story as it unfolds. There are certain things that did happen. The announcement to Mary, the announcement to Elizabeth, the babies that were involved, the, the leaping in the womb for Elizabeth, and the announcement by Mary that she believed that what was about to happen was for the good of the world, not just the good of her home. All of these truths are there. But I want you to also notice the relationships. Relationships are at the heart of the Christmas story. God isn't just telling them information, he is impacting them and he is using descriptors and terms in this storyline that highlight what happens in relationships as a result of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dave Shearer, when he was speaking about this, was talking about what happens at Christmas and the way that it's presented in the Gospels. And he says at Christmas, it's as if God walked down the stairs of heaven with a baby in his arms. It's as if he's coming down for Christmas morning and here is Christ that is just a part of the festivities. He's introducing us to him in a profound way and he gives us these nativity stories in order for us to wrap our minds around them. I just want you to think about uh, three groups of people, three uh, sets of individuals or individuals here. First, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth is one that is being visited by Mary, but we find out earlier in Luke chapter 1 that Zechariah is a priest. So the relative of Mary's, uh, uh, Elizabeth, is married. Uh, to a priest. And so his hope was that Israel would continue to grow, that he would be able to participate in Israel's future by having children. The priests, the Levites actually could not own the land. they Their inheritance was Israel. So if they did not have children, they wouldn't be able to participate in the future. That was their theology and their understanding. And here's Zechariah as he is going to the temple. And it says that they were old, The implication is, is that he's at the very end of his priestly duties. This is the end of the time when he would be able to serve. They haven't had any children and it is evident that they are not going to. Zechariah has been chosen by lot. The lots were cast and he was chosen to go into the temple at a particular time and serve incense at the temple. That picture of incense has historically always been. This was how they understood it. It's how it's described in scripture. It was a picture of the prayers of the saints. As the saints pray, it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. And he responds to the prayers of the saints. So here is this man, Zachariah, who is in the temple. And he is offering incense. He is offering up to God a picture of the prayers of the saints. And a reminder that God listens to the prayers. But he is sitting there in that place... The indication of scripture is, having thought that God overlooked his prayer to have a child, he's offering this prayer, he's doing this in faith, he's doing what he's supposed to do, but he's not really sure, does God answer prayer? I don't know, we're childless and can't participate. As he is offering that picture of prayer and God's response, an angel shows up. And he tells him, he hails him, he tells him, God has heard your prayer. Well, when? How long before that was he aware that they were not gonna be able to have a child as a couple? How long before that had Zechariah given up praying that prayer? How long before that had he said, I don't know, uh, I know that God's good and that he can do these things, but he did not choose to do it for us. It doesn't indicate that he's bitter, It it just would be dramatic if he still thought God was answering that prayer. That prayer was from a long season prior and he reminds him, God has not forgotten your prayer. He heard you even though you've given up, he hasn't. And he's gonna give them a son. In fact, the evidence that Zechariah was struggling a little bit with belief that God could do these things, the angel strikes him so that he can't speak, and he has to wait until the child is born to reveal his name and to say, this is uh, what has happened. The doubts were in his heart and God says, I'm gonna answer those doubts but I'm gonna bless you with this child. It's intriguing in verse 14 and 15, though, what he tells Zechariah would happen. He doesn't just tell him, you're going to have the precursor to the Messiah. This guy was prophesied from the old. He doesn't just give him a theological list of how he's going to answer prophecies. Listen to what he says. There will be joy and delight for you, verse 14, and many will rejoice at his birth. That's not a theological term. That's not uh, just a descriptor of what John would be able to provide. He's saying, In your home, there will be joy and delight for you. People around you are going to be blessed by this relationship. He tells him in relational terms how he is going to experience this and how he and Elizabeth will be blessed. Joy and delight for you. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord, will never drink wine or beer, will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. This is why he leaps when the sound of Mary's greeting comes because already that little baby has the Holy Spirit and can sense what's going on. Zechariah is a picture of this. Joseph. Joseph gets news that Mary, his bride-to-be, is pregnant and he knows that it's not his. We can't imagine what Joseph must have been thinking. I would encourage you to read that story in Matthew 1, 18 through 24 on your own. But as the angel speaks to Joseph, he says, to Joseph, Joseph, don't set her aside, don't divorce her, don't separate from her. This is a, an act of God from the Holy Spirit. And he tells him, You're actually going to name him Jesus uh, that the Lord saves, but they, the people, will call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is important. It's not only a prophetic statement, but it was a statement of what the experience of those around would have. It's not just that Jesus saves, it's not just that God would come and take away our sin. He doesn't give them terms like, uh, and they will call him God the conqueror, uh, or God the judger, or God the separator. He's not gonna call him based on all these things that he could potentially do. They're gonna call him, after they walk with Jesus, they're gonna call him God with us. It's a relational term. He is actually walking with us, he's interacting with us. We could know him like we can know another individual. And he tells Joseph, it's going to be God with us. He's going to be in your home. You're going to speak of him this exact same way. And he helps him, Joseph, not just understand what's about to happen, but be rightly related to Mary, to accept her and to give her the kind of home that would be right to bring the Savior into. Notice also Mary. In the passage that we read in verse uh, 38, she says, See, I'm the servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Um, but what does she do? She, she's just hearing the information at that point. We're not sure how, how deeply that sank in. It just is impacting her. I'm gonna have a child. What do I do? Well, the angel keeps indicating somebody else can understand me, and so she takes off, it says, in verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah. That means she started walking and then began to run. She's three months pregnant. pregnant. She's seen an angel. Who else has seen an angel? Well, I heard that Elizabeth has seen that. How, who else are you going to tell? Without feeling like people will begin to doubt you and you're going to get ostracized. Not only that, uh, are you going to tell your mom? Mom, I'm, I'm pregnant. Don't worry, it's a God thing. <laughs> who is she going to tell about this thing that she's, engaged, that she's dealing with? How is she going to experience this? she's going to somebody else who can understand what she's just experienced, who can understand a little bit of the complication of the pregnancy at this stage of life. Elizabeth has spent time being ostracized by the culture because they thought she did something wrong. That's why she couldn't have kids. It's not the truth, but that was their cultural understanding. She was slowly ostracized. Who are you going to go to when you're a girl who you know You're not yet married, and in that culture, she would have been ostracized. Who's going to help me walk through this and wrap my mind around it? She goes right to Elizabeth, a person that God had pointed to and said, she's going to be able to help you. She started walking, but when she began to reflect more on it, she ran straight to Elizabeth, and that person was able to help her walk through what she was facing. Christ dramatically changes not only opinions, but outcomes. Outcomes. He doesn't just change opinions of the people around in the Christmas story, he changes the outcome of their life. Where they were headed, the way that their life was colored, the things that they thought got dramatically changed by the presence of Christ, by the way that he came into the world. One pastor used the term, uh, the least, the last, and the lost. That's what we tend to see at Christmas, So the conclusion we draw is that the least, the last, and the lost are brought together in Jesus. In the Christmas story, we see these folks coming home. We see the beginning of what it means to have forgiveness and to have Jesus enter in and change our situation. There's a famous story. You can uh, look it up online. It's been read since the 1800s called The Burglar's Christmas. And it's about a young man, uh, Willie who had um, wandered far from home when he was a teenager. He'd begun to hang out with all the wrong people, began to go the wrong direction. Um, And his family was wealthy, but he did not want to listen to them about their Savior or about their rules or about their life. He wanted to do life his own way. And so we had come upon the scene as he's now in his 20s and he's in Chicago and it's cold. He still has some of the old morals in him. He doesn't yet want to beat people up or steal in order to get food, but he is at the very end of himself. He is freezing. He barely has enough clothing. He is starving. There's no place for him to go, and he's overwhelmed by his circumstances, and we get a little view of his mind as he begins to look around at the people that are going by saying, well, why do they have food, and why do they have gifts, and why do they have all these things, and I've got nothing, and he's despondent by his situation, and he sees this young gal as she's walking out burdened with gifts, slipping in the snow and she's unaware that a gift had fallen and everything in him wants to just grab the gift unwrap it and go sell whatever is in there so that he can get some food but he just remembers how he'd been taught when he's younger and he was he said I don't want to be there just yet and so it, with this battle that's going on inside him he he chases the gal down and he says ma'am you've dropped this gift and he gives her back the gift And immediately he regrets it. He is hungry and at the end of himself. And he sees after he drops this gift off, this home with a door that's just open. A group of people got out of a a sleigh. They come up to the front of the house. And as they go into the house, all excited to be able to have the festivities of the season, they left the door open. And he can see in there and he thinks, if I just run in. I'll grab some earrings, I'll grab a necklace, I'll grab something that I can sell. They won't miss it, they're obviously wealthy. I'll just go in and grab that and I'll be able to eat. I I won't do this for the rest of my life, but I'll do it right now. And against all of his conscience, he runs into the building. And as he goes into the building, he breaks into one of the bedrooms and he begins to rummage around and he pulls out some bracelets and a necklace. And he just says, this all feels so strangely familiar. He turns around and the door opens and there is an older woman that is standing in the doorway. White hair, getting ready, dressed for bed. And instead of screaming and instead of uh, attacking him, instead of berating him because he's in the room, she all of a sudden looks at him with this intensity and she shouts out, Willie? Willie, is that you? And he realizes it's his mom. He has gone into the house of his parents she begins to tell him, Willie, I know it's you. And she begins to kiss him and to hold him close. And she pulls him in. And she says, when we, we thought that you might be moving west and we had an opportunity to, ha- to uh, have this new job. So we moved to this area and I was hoping, I just knew that you might be nearer to this location. She says, I almost gave up hope that I would ever see you again. Now he's embarrassed. He's holding clearly her things and the intention is written all over him. He's weeping, oh no, Lord, this would be worse, he said. It it would be better if I just got caught. It would be better if I just ended up in jail, but to have my mom be the one that catches me at my lowest moment. Now, one author was reflecting on this story and why it was popular for such a long season, and this is what they said. You were warned, and he did at the beginning of his understanding of it. He says, you were warned that this story strains credulity. On Christmas Eve, a 24-year-old ne'er-do-well finally turns to crime, only to discover he's robbing his own family, and his father's job had brought them to Chicago. But as his mother tells his son, I was glad when we came, because I thought in my heart I would be a good deal nearer to you. It is only when we truly know ourselves as prodigals that we can recognize the gift of love given to us in Bethlehem. The Christmas story isn't about another baby being born into poverty. Sadly, that tale has been told more times than can be numbered. No, the Son of God, in the Son of God, God's love was made manifest in the flesh of a baby. It has come to dwell with us. We would steal the world for ourselves. The Son of God responds by entering to the, into the world as one of our innumerable, humble victims. And desires to bring us home. We would steal the world for ourselves. He comes in and is victimized by us with his intention of bringing us safely home. The story about Bethlehem, Mary, um, the baby, uh, Elizabeth, all of those stories are not just information. It's not just so that we can win a trivia uh, contest. It's not just given to us so we can be intrigued. He uses relational tones in here, descriptors, so that you and I would be captivated by what happens in their relationship to carry the story forward. God cares about relationship, and if you know him, you'll be transformed. A second thing that I, I want you to notice in here is that relationships drive the truth about Christmas and the gospel home. Christmas and our celebrations at Christmas put a magnifier on our relationships, That means that when we begin to have our Christmas celebrations... How you relate to the rest of your family is gonna get magnified. You're gonna see if there is a rift between one or another. You're gonna see if there's real joy between those that you rightly relate to. But whatever it is that you are experiencing in your close friendships or with those that are around you, it gets magnified at Christmas as we celebrate, as we begin to look forward to different events or not look forward to those events. Whatever we are experiencing ends up getting magnified and it's to those situations where Christ wants to give His plan. He wants to bring you close. We are wired to learn, experience, and apply truth in community. We're going to skip the the video on this, but I'm just going to describe to you something that I had seen. Um, This statement that we are wired to learn, experience, and apply truth in community, as I shared it with different people in the weeks leading up to this, uh, this was the one that, for the most part, this is where I had the most people kind of uh, wrinkle up their face and say, really? We are wired to learn those things in community. Can't I learn about God online? Can't I read the Bible on my own and discover those things? You, you can read about God. You can discover some information, but you cannot apply the one another's. You can't love one another. You can't serve one another. You can't bless one another in any way unless there is another another. You cannot apply the transformation. You can't reveal to others you've been transformed unless somebody else can witness those things. If you were brought to Christ, the chances are very strong that that didn't just happen in a vacuum, that you actually heard about Jesus from another individual or you were discipled in the Lord by another individual. But Christmas helps those things to be able to be brought to light. We are wired to experience these things in community. I had a little video clip, I'll just describe it for you, but it, it was proof that this isn't just for extroverts. Most folks say, well, that's, that's the way extroverts relate. You just jump around and you're really loud and you don't mind that other people in the room hear you talking. But what happens if you're kind of a wallflower, you're somebody that's separate? What happens if you love uh, ones and zeros and, and doing computer programming and just, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever? Are you really wired for community? And I would say yes. There's a a video of a group of guys from NASA and they're just about ready to see this Mars lander land on Mars. Now the last one that tried to get to Mars had burnt up and so they hear all of this. It's just a bunch of guys. Um, Basically, all they've eaten for six months is Doritos, okay? Mountain Dew, they're sitting there quietly, all behind their cubicles, but when that Mars lander lands, They are jumping around, they are ecstatic, they're hugging each other, they are shouting. It's no longer these guys that are just completely happy to be able to program. They need to be able to share their success and that moment with somebody else. Now it does look like a bunch of guys that would uh, stand in for maybe Napoleon Dynamite that are uh, jumping around, but they are having the time of their life and they're being able to share that moment in community. The truth that landed that Um, Mars lander onto there, the the X's and O's, that's great. But the fact that they had all gotten it right and they were able to work together to have that thing land, that impacted them as a community. We're wired this way. One pastor said that we find the Lord mainly through community. I want you to see that in this moment. It says, in verse 38, um, Mary says, see, I'm the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. You don't see energy Coming out of Mary at this moment, I think she's just in shock, but it says in those days, so immediately after she hears from an angel, she runs, sets out and hurries to a town in the hill country of Judah. She goes to see Elizabeth. So we see her accepting the truth at the beginning, but then she runs to Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth hears her coming in the door, Mary hasn't even had an opportunity to unpack everything that she's heard or what has gone on. As soon as she enters the door and she says uh, a greeting, Elizabeth, it's me, it's Mary, can I come into the house? Elizabeth starts shouting and says, how is it that the mother of my Lord is coming to my house? And she is rejoicing. The baby inside, filled with the Holy Spirit, has responded to the good news. We know that you are, are pregnant. And she is overwhelmed, and Mary begins to give her song. She doesn't just say, Oh, yeah, it's gonna happen. She's not staying understated. But when somebody else rejoices with her over the truth, Mary's song is just unlocked in her heart, and she begins to sing and unpack all the beauty of what it means to follow the Lord. She accepts and realizes the truth. Christmas magnifies our relationships, but also magnifies the Lord in our heart through relationship. But I want you to also notice that Christmas changes our view of the world. Mary's song in that moment, as she is relating to Elizabeth, she begins to sing and realizes that Jesus is going to do this in the life of many other people. He's going to change the way that they relate to others. He's going to change the way that they relate to God. He is going to invade into our world and make it possible for you and I to have a relationship with him. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She's describing her state and the joy that she has over being the mother of the Savior. But listen to what she says in verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Notice that. Scattered the proud because of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. And he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant remember his mercy. Now when we begin to read that and we hear all of the stuff in our culture that kind of jumps up in there, social justice and all these other kinds of things that are fanning the flame all across our culture, and we begin to read this and we read with current eyes, but we'd be reading it wrong. He's not just saying that God takes you if you're up high, he's going to put you down. If you're down low, he's going to lift you up. He's not just there to try and make everything topsy-turvy. The implication of this passage and the reason that Mary is rejoicing, she has gone as a lowly servant to somebody else who's at the other end of the spectrum but also has experienced being ostracized and they both have a relationship with God that's been magnified because of Jesus Christ. And she begins to sing this song that says, if your pride is getting in the way of you with the Lord, God will crush that so that you'll be able to meet him. If you're so impoverished, that you say, how can God be good if I can't even eat some food or be able to feed my children? He's going to lift you up so there won't be anything in the way. Whatever it is that's going to get in the way of your relationship with God, I'm going to remove that so that you'll see him for the beauty of who he is. He's going to use the people around to do that. Change your circumstances. It's not just about trying to put people in their place or do something to decry or or the, the hardness of life on earth. He's not just making a random statement in order to to have some kind of social response. He is trying to remove the things that would get in the way of your relationship with God. He's going to change your view of the world so that you will be rightly related to others. What did we need? Some of us need scattering. Some of us need humbling. Some of us need lifting. But whatever it takes, God will do it. Another famous story, the Christmas story, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. Is the centerpiece of that story. It's the guy that stands in for him. Pretty good likeness. There's five staves typically in uh, the original telling by Dickens. And so at the very beginning, we see this man, Ebenezer Scrooge, and we have no idea why he is so bitter, why he's so irritated, but we just know he won't let the man that works for him even take a day off, not even Christmas Day. You're supposed to work for me. This is how many days that we work. Christmas might fall during the week. You don't get to take the day off. I don't care how hard it is on your family. I don't care how impoverished it is. I don't care what's going on in your home. You work for me. This is what we do. And he's in that counting house. And he is constantly irritated. He doesn't like the singing of the carolers. He doesn't like the celebrations that are going on in other homes. We don't know how he got there. The implication at the beginning is he must have been this way his entire life. But there is a moment that happens as Scrooge uh, is visited by... The ghost of an old friend, somebody else who he used to work with, Jacob Marley, and Marley comes in and says, "Scrooge, you're about to end up just like me, chained up in a mess. And three different visitors come to him and begin to reveal to him the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. And you know that story. But there's one moment where we can see young Scrooge, who was still full of excitement, still full of life, still full of anticipation, and there's a divergence that happens where the life that he could have lived and the thinking he could have had, uh, he left behind in order to become the bitter old man that he was. And he decided instead of celebrating with his boss, Fezowig, He ends up going his own way, and he ends up not only losing that job in the long run, he made money, his master, but he also lost uh, the gal that he was wanting to marry. And you see in this scene, this ball that is there, and it really is everything that is supposed to be described in the gospel a celebration of people coming in, forgetting their situation, just enjoying life together. And the main guy, Fezziwig has has paid for the entire ball himself. So he's the owner of this business. And all the people that relate to that business are invited to this party. Fezziwig, at one point, is dancing in front of them. And this was inappropriate for an older gentleman of means to do. But he had white stockings on. And uh, this is how he describes him. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. He's dancing around so much and the light is hitting his legs and he is dancing and joyous and filled with happiness and anybody can come in. Fezzowig's, uh ball, uh, in the middle of it, they actually had somebody come in and begin to play a fiddle. And the fiddler gets right up front center stage and he puts everything on the desk and he begins to play music and it's so fierce and so wild and everyone is swirling around and dancing and having such a good time that at the very end, Fezziwig is clapping his hands and declaring that it was glorious and he had provided a pot of water and the fiddler is so hot and so sweaty, he dips his head into this bucket of water to cool off. Crazy moment. In contrast, this one author says to Scrooge's miserly attitude, Fezziwig's ball is thrown on his dime as a celebration for all of his employees. Dickens describes who could come to the ball this way. In they all came, one after the another. Some shy, some bold, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Everyone was welcome. It was a picture, not just of that ball and not just of a moment for Ebenezer Scrooge, but it was a picture of who is invited when you're a part of the kingdom. It was intended to be a picture of when we are right with Christ, everybody should be welcome at the table, amen? Amen. And they're all brought in and they are all celebrating and Ebenezer was so far from this gospel picture. He had all of the money and all of the means, but none of the heart. The final scene that we have Scrooge has found out in that final moment not only what happens to Tiny Tim and, and his family as this would be the last Christmas they would celebrate together because they didn't get a meal, because he didn't get the day off, this little one would pass. But he also sees his own grave and that as everyone is mourning Tiny Tim, this sweet little kid, nobody is at his grave. In fact, only curses are thrown that direction. And he doesn't want it to be true. He wakes up Christmas morning. He shouts out, oh, I still have time. I still have time. And he goes and he buys a Christmas goose and goes to the family, has it cooked so that he can celebrate with this one that he has turned away. He's there with Tiny Tim, understanding that one decision could change their family dynamic. Now, let me ask you something. Here's a picture of him with Tiny Tim, that little one alive because of his goodness and the turn at one last moment. But where does all the power of that story come from? Where did Dickens even get that theme so that he would be able to share it with us? How can it become a cultural favorite? All of that theme, all of that storyline, the storylines that we're sharing with you that we're filling up our culture, that our culture has been feasting on for generations, all of them get their power from the gospel. There is no story for us to fall into unless Jesus Christ actually came for us, amen? Amen. Unless this story is true, the rest of those have nothing to write about or to apply or for us to dream about as being possible. These are all applications of a truth that really happened. And this truth will not only change your destiny, eternity. Jesus Christ came, was, uh, died, was buried and rose again on the third day for you to change your life. He'll change your destiny, but he will also, if you put your life in his hands, he will change your relationships. He'll change your experience. He'll change your Christmas. Celebrating the joy of relationship is a Christmas tradition. And it also happens to be a mark that the gospel's taken root. I close with this verse. First John four says this. It says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. If you are rightly related to Jesus Christ, you will be rightly related to those around you. Amen? And we'll celebrate with hearts that are full of joy because of what Christ did. Let's pray. Father, we do help, or pray that you would help us this Christmas season, that you would enable our celebrations to be filled with wonder, with joy, uh, with open hearts. I pray, Father, that you would repair Relationships that you would cause us to see the people around us in the right light because of what Christ has done. That bitterness would fade, that our irritation with those that are around us in our culture would be overwhelmed with a sense of anticipation. You have made it possible that every single person that hears the gospel is a candidate for heaven. Anybody can be with you for eternity. Be forgiven and be rightly related to those around them. Fill us with a sense of anticipation that you will work that, what we have called magic of Christmas, that you can actually do that transforming work in a heart. We believe it. We ask that you would help us to apply those things, to live out the gospel truths in such a way that our homes are settled, that we not only have peace, that there is rejoicing and joy that only comes from those who are right with you. We thank you for this promise and we ask that you'd help us to celebrate with anticipation in Jesus' name, amen.